Hi, I'm Hannah, team manager with the Orange Arrow Players Association, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to coach student athletes to aim for success off the field. Please consider making a play by giving, hosting a fundraiser, subscribing to our podcast and YouTube channel, and staying connected on social media at Orange Arrow PA. Visit orangearrow.org for more information. Thank you for listening. Take aim. Welcome to Inside the Play Call with Orange Arrow. And today we have a very, very special guest, my guy, Kenny Donaldson. What up, boss? How you doing? Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited to reconnect, talk about my story, talk about Orange Arrow, all the great stuff you're doing, man. It's great to see you. Man, it's great to see you as well, man. Where are you right now? I'm in Los Angeles, so we are working from home, but uh, I'm in Los Angeles in my apartment. We'll get to that. So we meaning UCLA. We'll Correct. get to that a little later. But, but you know, as an athlete, the, the importance of warming up and stretching, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. My guy, I got a couple questions for you. Here we go. Oh, okay. If you go on to listen to one musical artist for 30 days straight, only one, who are you selecting? Oh, man, man. It's tough, but uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a '90s hip hop baby, so uh, I'm a I'm a Jay Z guy. I think the reason why I like Jay is musically, Jay makes great music, but there's lessons in Jay's music, and I'm all about the lessons. And I think the stuff that you hear from Jay, you can listen to it over and over again, and it applies to so much in life. So yeah, I would go with Jay Z. Plus, his that's a great that's a great selection. Now you said '90s because that's when Jay Z was coming out. Did you talk about lessons? His last album, four, four, four. You talk about lessons. You're right, exactly, and and that's dropping jewels. That's the thing. You go from reasonable doubt to four, four, four with all the albums in between. So much different stuff on there. His catalog is amazing. So you're right. So when you think of Jigga, what some of the songs come to mind? You said what some of the songs that come to mind? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I go back to like twenty two twos. You know, uh, reasonable doubt. So like the first album, and then moving to you know, uh, in my lifetime. Uh, the stuff with Mary J. Blige, like for me, I listen to a lot of the old J just because it brings me back to like those times. But then, like right. you know, Jigga what and that—that's when I was in like my club vibe, party vibe. Jigga like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, like the modern stuff, the story of OJ. You know, you listen to that. Like I said, there's so many stories and stuff in J. The uh, the soundtrack of um, American Hustler or American Gangster with Denzel, like just. Listen to it. Jay put you at a time and place like nobody else, man. That's true. And then, and then even thinking about Jay off track, you know, I mean, yeah. Sean Carter, the businessman, like, I'm a businessman, like, it's yeah, remarkable. Exactly. exactly. Like, that's the thing. Like you said, I can listen to Jay interviews as much as I can listen to Jay music because just the jewels and things that he drops are just so unique. And he's been successful in everything that he's done, man. And Yeah, heard- no, that's great. Yeah. Nah, now nah, I'm with you. Jay-Z, Jay-Z. Here we go. Another one for you. Yeah, okay. If you could work any job for one day, what would you do? Any oh. job. So all of a sudden, tomorrow, you have the ability to work any job. What job are you doing for one day? Would I have the knowledge to do that job? So like, if I do the job, I have the knowledge? Correct. Okay. I would be a, an investor or work in the stock exchange so that I could spend that one day maximizing my earning potential so that I could do the stuff that I love to do for the rest of my life. So that's what I would say. I'll, I will work somewhere in investing in stocks for that one day and try to soak up as much game as I could. 
I love that. I love that. I love that. I, uh, it's interesting. I wouldn't mind being able to fly a plane just to say I, okay. I, I flew a plane. I flew a plane. But, uh, but I don't really rock with heights, so I don't know how that's going to work, though. But <laughs> that's what I was going to say is you, you can fly that plane by yourself because heights ain't my thing either, man. Yeah, you're going to be the co pilot with me. <laughs> that's all you, man. That's all you. I'll let you take care of that. Last one favorite TV show of all time. Favorite favorite TV show of all time. I'm a uh, I'm a big wire guy. So I love the wire. Uh, I just feel like the series really, really broke down like how institutional and structural different things like racism and you know why why people are in the situations that they're at. A lot of it isn't their choice. It's that systems have been built up to, you know, to oppress certain people. And you know, we'll talk about some of my background in urban education, but the wire just presented it in such a way where you just learn so much game from it. So I think The Wire is one of my favorite all-time shows. As far as comedies are concerned, I, I'm, there's a show that not many people know or, or are big on. That's one of my favorites. Everybody likes Martin, but My Wife and Kids with Damon Wayans was a sleeper show for me. If anytime My Wife and Kids is on, I can watch that. I love that show. My wife because it's good. I'm a huge Mark fan. I watch Mark to the day as if I've never seen it before. Exactly. The Wire, that is classic. So between the two, though, you going you going The Wire or My Wife and Kids? I'm going The Wire because again, I'm all about just like learning stuff, and and I think it's great to laugh. I think it's great to enjoy life. You know me, I I really enjoy life. I enjoy people. But I'm when I'm watching TV, I love to be educated on what I'm doing. So I feel like I'm leaving with something, and I learn so much from The Wire. So I'm gonna stick with The Wire. Dig it, dig it. Now, I actually got put onto the wire late. Like when it was at its height, I really, I really wasn't on it. And then I stumbled upon it later. Like, that's a great show. So thinking of the wire now, now did that shape your, your views on the city of Baltimore? It's interesting because people I know that either live in Baltimore or from Baltimore, a lot of them say they won't watch the wire either because it hits so close to home or because they're saying they're not sure if that's really what it's like. Now I know the person that wrote it is from Baltimore, my understanding is. So I think that this person's view is what Baltimore is. But for me, I didn't look at it as a view of what Baltimore is. I looked at it as a view of what urban landscapes are about, period. Yeah. Baltimore just happened to be the setting for this one. But whether you're talking about, you know, inner city Pittsburgh, Baltimore, you know, cities like that, even LA, I think there's an element of the wire that like captures each of those. Got it, got it. So Kenny, take us back. Early beginnings, where you originally from, introduction to sports, take it away for a little bit. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Sean. So, uh, yeah, my background, um, I, I played basketball in high school. I was the same height now as I was in high school, so I knew I had no future really in basketball. Which is but what, five, about eight, five, nine? ish on a good day. Yeah, if I okay. stretch myself out, wear some good socks and good shoes, I'm about five, nine. So, yeah, and, and, and I just felt like uh, – uh, I wanted to be around sports. And if it wasn't playing sports, I wanted to learn about other ways to get involved in sports. So uh, like I mentioned, I graduated high school in 92 and went to UCLA, uh, got into UCLA, was my dream school because I wanted a school that balanced both uh, academic excellence, but also had an athletic department that was you know, world renowned as well. And I felt like me having the experience of going to school and being with you know, some of the greatest thought leaders in the world, but also having that sporting environment was important for me. And I think that that leads into my story of how sports have impacted and influenced my life. So, I mean, so wait, so where are you from? 
I'm a, I was born in New Jersey and okay. I moved to LA when I was three. So I was basically raised most of my life is, uh, has been in LA. So I'm a, I'm a LA kid for the most part, but I was born in Jersey. So, so, so thinking of LA sports, like who did you look up to? Were you a Laker fan? Like, so here's Eric the crazy Dickerson? thing. My, my, my pops, uh, my pops has passed, but when my pops was alive, he was a huge LA fan, Laker fan, Dodger fan, all that kind of stuff. When I went to school, everybody were Laker fans, Dodger fans, and all that. I always used to use the fact that I was born in Jersey to become an outside-the-box thinker. So believe it or not, Sean, I followed the Lakers, but I was a New Jersey Nets fan. Kenny Anderson is my favorite basketball player of all time, besides Allen Iverson. I was a Philadelphia Eagles fan because as a young kid, the Eagles had a black head coach and they had a black quarterback, and I had never seen that. Ray Rhodes is the coach, Donovan McNabb, Randall Cunningham, Cunningham. one of my favorite football players of all time. So I became an Eagles fan. And if you know how Jersey and Philly are situated, they're right kind of on the border of each other. So people would say, why weren't you a Jets fan or why weren't you a Giants fan? And I looked at the Eagles and I saw people that looked like me being represented on the Eagles. I became an Eagles fan. So Eagles fan, Nets fan for basketball and for baseball is actually a Mets fan. Dwight Gooden is my favorite baseball player of all time. So I was a Mets, Nets, and Eagles fan for sports, man. Got you. So think of the Eagles. You took me back. Randall Cunningham, he was yeah. so smooth. He was ahead of his time, for real. Thank you. Thank you. He, yeah, doesn't, they, he doesn't get the, the, his, his just due because, like, like he's, he's a pioneer. So I think That's the thing, Sean, is that, you know, you, you played football. You know the game. A lot of times coaches have this stereotype of what a quarterback's supposed to do. And like you said, I think Randall Cunningham was the right quarterback in the wrong era. Nowadays, you want your quarterback doing all the stuff Randall does, scrambling, making plays, being athletic. But I think they tried to rein him in and make him a pocket passer, and that actually hurt his game because he was best freestyling. He was best, you know, when he got out the pocket. He was a dual threat. He could run. But I think they really tried to make him a pocket passer, which really inhibited some of his game. Yeah, yeah. I think about him. I think of Randy Cunningham, like, soaring over the pile. He was so athletic. And I saw a recent story where – his children are pretty athletic. I think his daughter, I don't know if she's Olympian, but she may be close, but she's a high jumper. And so, like, they, yeah. they, they get it from their dad. Exactly. Exactly. Those genes got passed down, no question. And so, UCLA, what did you major in? Physiological science. I wanted to be a sports doctor. So, as, as you know, when I realized I couldn't be an athlete, I said being a sports doctor is the next best thing. So, if, at least for me at that time. So, um, I became uh, um, a physiological science major. Uh, in sports medicine. And in, uh, in 95, I actually interned for a year in the training room, which was the start of my path in athletics. And I worked a year where it was unpaid. It was a lot of hours, but I really, really got to learn about like the athlete psyche, about the different things. You know, when, when you go to college, for the most part, you know, myself, I wasn't a, a student athlete, but the main thing I would wake up, do I have a test today? You know, you know what, what, where am I going to eat? Like those types of things. And when I started talking to athletes and realizing all the things they had to balance with weights, film, proper nutrition, diet, like all that kind of stuff, it really got me to thinking that especially college student athletes have so much to balance. Who's there to support them? Who's there to carry them? Who's here to help them out? And who's also there to be a shoulder to cry on or or ear to listen to, you know, those types of things. And it really, really showed me that, you know, college student athletes are a unique population and they need people there that don't get anything out of how they perform on the field, but they need people there that can help them 
through the life skills, learning what life is about, learning to navigate, especially 18 to 22, the most formative years of your life. They needed people there to help them navigate. So that's kind of what I did at that time as a uh, as an intern in the training room. And so as that that time period, I believe you said that's ninety. That was ninety five, correct? Ninety five, ninety six. Yep. Was that the national championship year or or right after? It was right after the national championship year, like right around that time. So I was I was working with uh, track and field, uh, soccer, some of those other sports, but I would leave the training room, and you know, Tyus Edney, who's a friend of mine now, was national champion in basketball, Ed O'Bannon, Toby Bailey, all those guys were just normal guys. They would just hang out. They would just be normal students. But then you turn on the TV, you see them there. They won a national championship. They come back. They're bigger celebrities than they were when they left. You know, LA, Sean, LA is all about glitz and glamour. So you turn on the Tonight Show or, you know, I can't even remember what it was back then, if it was Johnny Carson or Jay Leno or, you know, whoever it was. And you'd see guys that were in your class or standing next to you at, on Bruin Walk. And the next thing you know, they're on TV, they're in music videos, they're doing all this stuff. So yeah, it was, it was a great time to be at UCLA. The, the, the community, but especially like the black community really rallied around the student athletes there and especially our basketball team. And I pledged a black fraternity, I'm a Kappa. So, you know, being in that black Greek life, I pledged in 96 and then being around the basketball, it was just for me, like a, a great time at UCLA. You play as Kappa, I know that. When, so when was the last time you uh, you walked? You last time walk? Oh, I'm too old. My, my knees might give out now, but uh, the last time I actually remember it doing it in a funny way was uh, a wedding. So I was in I was in uh, one of my fraternity brother's weddings like two years ago, and he told us before the wedding, he's like, hey, you know, this my, my wife's family, you know, this is going to be a, a, a very formal ceremony. You know, you guys can't. After a while, Sean, he was leading us doing it. So, yeah, two, about two, three years ago was the last time I did it in a wedding. Did you have a cane? No, I didn't. I didn't have a cane. And I, and I can't, you know, we'll keep it low, but I'm not really like a master twirler or anything like that. So, oh, that wasn't your thing? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't the twirl king on campus, and I wasn't the twirler. So, uh, yeah, that wasn't my thing. But, yeah, that is our fraternity's thing. You're right. And so you had to shimmy then, huh? So this shimmy, uh, you, you're bringing up like a very this there's a there's a dispute like a like a, a split in our fraternity. The shimmy is a relatively new thing. So we say, oh. yeah, the, at least at least the way that I view it. So in my time, 95, 96, 97, 98, like around that time, we had certain things that we would do, certain moves, but the shimmy wasn't one of them. After the 2000s, the shimmy really kind of took over. So for me, in my era, I wasn't a shimmier, but I was a party walker. I, I would stroll through a party like nobody's business, but that the new shimmy stuff that they do, that, that wasn't my era. Gotcha. So, so, so what was the song that they would play at UCLA where y'all would just, y'all would get down? So the, the, to me, the national, so when I, I pledged in 96, and after I crossed in 96, I did like a, 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 a inter, not an international tour, but a national tour. I went to Howard Homecoming. I went to Kappa Luau, which is in Florida, Kappa Beach Party in Texas. I went to uh, Bayou Classic. And internet or, or nationally, where you went, Flashlight. That was the song. When they played Flashlight, all the Kappas would hit the dance floor. So Flashlight was simply our song. What started becoming our song, though, is uh, Wipe Me Down by Boozy. So Ooh, that is right. Wipe Me Down by Boozy. That's, that's how you get the noobs out. 
I got it. So yeah. it was uh, Parliament of Funkadelic Splash, like, duh, duh, uh-huh. duh. Now, yep. and, and then it was, uh, I'm white oh, white now. Yeah. Oh, white. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Love it. And so, hey, I'm trying to remember the year, though. So I'm kind of taking you off a little bit. But you said yeah. around 96, the, um, was that the time when Tupac got killed? Yeah, like, I actually, and that connects to a story. So we used to throw parties up on campus, like 96, 97, around that time. And uh, Suge actually came to one of our parties one time because Death Row Records is on Wilshire Boulevard, which is uh, two blocks down from UCLA. Wow. Randomly one time, Suge showed up to one of our parties. And then uh, another night. (laughs) Random? Yeah, just random. And then another night, I went to Fat Burger, which was in Westwood. And Pac was sitting out in front of Fat Burger, leaning on, you know, Rolls, Bentley, like something around that. And to me, it was like, he wasn't Tupac, Tupac at that time, but I knew who he was. And it just kind of threw me off. But that was that was the life at UCLA at that time. There's a spot called Monty's, which was kind of like, a, I think, a rib place or a steak place during the day. But they threw clubs on the roof of Monty's at night. And as college students, you would have head over to Monty's. And you never know who you may see at Monty's from, you know, a Pac or a Shug or somebody like that to all kinds of people. And then uh, my roommate in college threw a club called the Century Club. And if you talk to people in L.A., everybody knew the Century Club. So I would go to the Century Club with suit not fitting. You know, I didn't know nothing about going out in a suit. So my suit was ill fitting. I didn't know nothing. But I would see Prince, Mike Tyson and just these people that could we're in the same club as you. Man, you're, you're dropping legends, goats. Oh, like, wow. If you ask people about the Century Club, Sean, in LA, around the late 90s, like the Century Club was a place to be. And my roommate was a promoter there. So it, it was great for me. Wow. Wow. And so staying with the national championship, I mean, because that had to be crazy. And that's when people could say that, you know, they, they were part of the student body when one of their sports team won, won the national championship. So, like, how was that? Like, uh, was the students really excited, rallying around? Uh, yeah. Did you get a chance to go to any of the games, like Sweet 16 or anything like that? Like, talk a little bit more about that time period. So the crazy thing, Sean, was uh, the game. Uh, they had a watch party in Poly Pavilion where the team played. So the game was in uh, Washington, but you could watch the game in Poly Pavilion on the big screens. Myself, now, who did they beat? Who did they play? Uh, for the national championship when they yeah. played Arkansas. Arkansas with uh, Stacey Ogden and- no, 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 that's UNLV. Uh, Corliss oh, Williams. UNLV. Who was Arkansas? Oh, that was a Richardson. Williamson. Corliss, Corliss Williamson. Corliss, Corliss Williamson. Williamson. That's who it is. Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. But yeah, the whole yeah. the whole run that year was great because that's that's how Tyus Edney got known because we had a play. We were down by, to Missouri by one. And in 4.8 seconds, Tyus went from coast to coast that year. And without that game, we don't get to the next game and get to that. So people yes. remember Tyus for the 4.8 run. People remember Ed O'Bannon because Ed was our MVP. He carried us on our back. But I was at Shakey's. I'll never forget, Sean. I was at Shakey's in Westwood. I watched the game. I walk out to the street, just probably head back to my room or something. And this swarm of people is coming off of campus. Everybody that was in Poly Pavilion came out, came out to Westwood to celebrate. So we're in the streets of Westwood. And, you know, wow. you what happens in cities when you know people are turning over cars they're lighting fires so uh police had to come out i had a few friends not myself but a few friends that got hit with rubber bullets just because it got wild so 
It was live, and Sean, we celebrated that championship like we like we played, but we celebrated that championship on campus for like a month or two. So wow. you went to uh, you went to campus the next week. They all returned. Everybody's cheering for them, hanging out. And then at UCLA at that time, they used to have free concerts, and we had what we call Black Wednesday. So every Wednesday at noon, all the black people would congregate. They had an outdoor stage, free concerts, Outkast, um, some of the roots. And this is when they were, you know, coming up into being. So you could go out for free. Everybody, they'd have a step show. Outcasts would perform the roots, and you could see this all for free. And the basketball team winning the national championship. Like I said, like my memories of the 90s of UCLA, man, were crazy. I was there at the right time. What a time to be yeah. alive. <laughs> be alive, yeah. Wow, that's a beautiful day. And so, uh, so after interning, so what did you do after yeah. you leave UCLA? Yeah, great point. So, so I graduated, uh, I took the MCAT, applied to medical school, and then just thought about my life. I had talked to people and I just felt like medical school wasn't the path that God was taking me down at the time. So I worked a, a nine to five, which nothing wrong with that. I worked an insurance job, was making an honest living. And then three, four years, I just said like, I'm not a sit in the cubicle, come in and punch the clock type of person. Nothing against people that do that, but I just felt like I needed to be around somewhere that had some energy, interacting with people and things like that. So I said, well, I wanna work on a college campus. So went up to UCLA, was applying for a position that dealt with retention and outreach for black students. So what I wanted to do was reach out to the community and bring black students into UCLA and then help them when they were there to navigate. At that time, there was a proposition, Proposition 209 passed that eliminated race-based So because my position was based on helping black students, they eliminated that position also. So in the process of applying, they told me that the funding for the position was gone. So I walked from where I went and did my interview to the next building over, which happened to be the athletics building, turned in a resume and just said, hey, if anything comes up in athletics, please let me know. I got a call the next day and I want to give a shout out to uh, Kim, Kim Duran, Kim Barger. She's the first person that, uh, that reached out to me about working in athletics. She's at uh, University of Washington right now. But Kim reached out to me and said, hey, we have a mentor position available. Would you be interested in coming in and, and, and doing that? And I said, yeah, sure, you know, uh, what is the detail? And she said, well, it's basically working with men's and women's basketball. You come up, you meet with them individually, help them with study skills, help them with time management, you know, all those different types of things. Yeah. So um, I did that. And actually the first student I ever worked with, Sean, was Trevor Ariza, who's still in the NBA to this day. And, you know, I would, I would work, Trevor, Trevor was a phenomenal guy, but I knew, he told me, he's like, I'm going to be in college one year and then I'm going to the league. And I said, cool, while you're here this year, let's make the most out of it. So, you know, I would make sure Trevor was on track, worked with a few other guys. And um, finally, I, I met the head coach at the time and said, you know, to the point that you asked me earlier, I said, hey, you know, my dream job would be doing this full time. If anything ever comes up, you know, please let me know. So he talked to some people. They created a position. So at the time, I was an academic mentor working part-time. I was working a full-time insurance job in the San Fernando Valley. I would drive up to UCLA about 45 minutes away, uh, work with student-athletes for a while, and then I would drive from UCLA to Cal State Long Beach. I was getting my master's degree in sports psychology and then drive back home every day. So I did that wow. grind like 
a year or two. And then they hired me full time as a, uh, they created a position called academic coordinator. So the academic coordinator gave me more stability. That was the job that I had. So I would just go to UCLA. I got benefits, you know, full time. So it was great, man. Speaking of timing, like you said, you know, yeah. life is about timing. I was a student at, I was a student in 95 when we won the national basketball championship. And I started working at UCLA when Ben Howland was there and became the coach. So that Pitt connection there, yeah. Ben Howland went from Pitt to UCLA. Right. I worked for him. And then I was there when he had the final four runs where we went to back to back to back final fours with guys like Aaron Aflalo, Jordan Farmar, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love. So I was there for like when those guys were high school players, when we were recruiting them, when they went to UCLA, when they played. And then as you know, they, they build their lives and their careers. Now, it's just great to be able to look back because, you know, just knowing that a guy like Russell, who's worked so hard to get to where he's at all his life, who wasn't a highly recruited or highly touted recruit, but just worked hard. And when he was at UCLA, was a great student guy like Kevin, who, you know, was a McDonald's All-American, but, you know, really, and, and he'll fully admit it, ha uh, had struggles with mental health, had struggles with, you know, weight and things of that nature. I think he speaks out. He speaks out about that now. Yeah, exactly. And he would come in my office, Sean. Russell would come in my office and we would just sit for hours and just we would do a small piece of academics, but we would just talk about life and just talk about adjustment as a college student. And I was getting my degree, my master's degree in sports psychology. So I was applying some of the things I was learning firsthand as a practitioner to hear an 18, 19 year old struggle with the stress of performing basketball wise, wanting to have a career that'll set your family up, but also having to juggle school, having to juggle your diet, having to juggle relationships, all that kind of stuff. It actually gave me a, a very uh, uh, insightful vantage point because I had no influence off of who played, how many minutes they played, any right. of the, ask them the ball, any of that. I would just always ask them, how are you doing? What's going on? And how can I help or support you? And that's how I started building what aren't transactional relationships, but are relationships more embedded in long-term sustainability. So I was, I was all about not having a transactional relationship. You come to me, I give you something. It was more about building long, deep, sustainable relationships. So we could talk about if you're struggling because of what's going on with you and your girlfriend now, if you're struggling because something back home is going on, if you're struggling because, you know, you, you're not getting enough sleep, so you're falling asleep in class. So we really would have those conversations with the students I was working with. And again, it was men's and women's basketball. So I would find out a lot about talking to our women's basketball student athletes about some of the identity things that they were going through with uh, as well. So it was very like hands-on job practitioner, Sean, where I learned so much. It was so insightful for me. Mm, that's really good. One, one of the words you, you mentioned that we, we share with the student athletes we work, work with, the importance of it, is building relationships. And so, so I mean, you, you mentioned some names where they're household names. And oftentimes, even when we're in college, you know, a lot of people are coming out of these athletes is about what they could take from them. You yep. know, they oftentimes have ulterior motives. You speak about relationships. Speak briefly about the power of relationships and building authentic relationships. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Sean, a lot of these guys, and, and women too, um, have so many people pulling, it, pulling on them, pulling them in different directions. You know, coaches need you to do this. Family back home needs you to do this. Your relationship, you know, you got to spend time for that. All of this stuff as you're trying to navigate being an 18 to 22 year old. So I would always tell the young people I work with this. 
all I ask for you is to give 100% effort in everything that you're doing. So if we're going to sit and we're going to talk about classwork, I need you to be engaged and give me 100%. If you can't give that to me that day, just tell me that and let me know and I'm willing to meet you where you're at. But at the same time, you have to just be able to give me that energy that I need in order for me to be able to do my job. So, you know, with me, Sean, I can't force you to do schoolwork. I can't force you to read. I can't force you to do X, Y, and Z. But if I have that trusting relationship with you, if I've gotten to know you and I'm like, Sean, I know you're not in the mood right now, but I need you to knock this out for me. Instead of writing this whole five page paper that's due next week, why don't we knock out a paragraph today? And why don't we talk through the rest? Why don't we read this piece together and talk about what it means to you? So how I started building relationships were, I wasn't the demanding like, you need to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that. I was all about what's your mood today? How much can you give me? And I'll meet you where you're at and let's try to knock this out piece by piece. So I think where I started building those relationships and the importance of relationships is, I looked at myself as a mentor, a big brother, you know, and that type of thing. But I also looked at myself as, you're here to be a student athlete. How can I help you be the best student athlete you can be? The athlete piece, I, I have no, I'm not gonna tell you how to shoot your free throws. I'm not gonna tell you how to dribble, how to run plays, but I could help you with that student piece. Let me know what you need help with in that way. And I'm here to help you in any way possible. And that's how relationships really got built, man. So how long was this spent at UCLA? So I was there from about 02, 03, to, to 12, 13. So about, about 10 years, I, uh, I was an academic coordinator, then um, assistant director of academic services. So I got to learn not just men's and women's basketball, but I worked with football student athletes when they needed tutoring. I worked with track and field student athletes if they had problems with their book scholarship. So I got to know a lot of different athletes in different sports just from working in academics and the way that academics is positioned at UCLA, the computer lab and our offices were on the first floor and that first floor saw the most traffic. So sometimes I would just get up and walk around the computer lab, see who's in there, introduce myself, see if someone needed help, assistance. And then you start to get to know faces, you become familiar with it. But the, the basketball players would come hang out. And at the time, the basketball players were some of the most well-known guys on campus. So people would pop in my office to talk to them and I'd get to know them and build relationships as well. So yeah, 10 years as first academic coordinator and then eventually assistant director of academic services, I got to know a large number of student athletes from them. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. The city where you and I connected, we met, the city of Pittsburgh. So what took you to Pittsburgh? Yeah, so, um, so at the time, my kid's mom, she had a uh, position in Pittsburgh, a uh, teaching position. So, you know, we all moved out there for the teaching position and, you know, I was looking for work and a good friend of ours, Ron Adoko said, hey, um, you know, I think I have something that you might be interested in. So UCLA created a position for me uh, working remote. Now in this Zoom world, it doesn't seem crazy, but back then I was working for two years for UCLA from Pittsburgh. So I got to work from home. I have, you know, two kids, so I got to take my kids to school and do all that stuff with them. But I was working remote for alumni. So I was doing East Coast outreach and engagement alumni for, um, for the university. So I would fly out to Philly, spend a few days in Philly, do some alumni events. I'll fly out to Atlanta, fly out to DC, do, do a lot of that stuff. And then our friend Ron was working at Pitt Alumni. 
And Ron said, hey, I think a job's going to come up at Pitt Alumni that you might be interested in. So I did the UCLA alumni thing for two years. And then at Pitt Alumni, I worked there, worked with Ron for two years, two great years, did a lot of uh, events around athletics, you know, met you, Penny Samaya, Charles Small, you know. Yeah, you talking uh, some legends now. Yeah, Shout Marcus Bowman. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it was just it was just great time. And then another mutual friend of ours, uh, Rich Milner, who uh, ran the Center for Urban Ed, asked me if I'd be interested in not just working for him, but also getting my doctorate. And it was a win. Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to pause you there. We're going to get into that. Yeah. L.A. to Pittsburgh. Yes. How was that transition? You talk about two different cities. How was that? The snow? What do you mean? Go ahead. I wasn't prepared at all for the cold, Sean. So. When I first moved out, it was during the summer. And you know, Pittsburgh summers are hot. I'm used to the heat in LA, but it's a different type of heat in Pittsburgh. But I wasn't, I didn't expect there to be that kind of heat. So I said, okay, this is interesting. Pittsburgh's a lot hotter than I thought. I think I could make this adjustment. And then, you know, once that winter hits, it's like, okay, winter hits, cool. All right, a month of this. All right, another month of this. Right. All right, it's February, another month of this. All right, it's April and it's still snowing. It's man, it's snowing. Honestly, Sean, like it was a huge adjustment just going out in the snow. Cause the first time I was out there and it snowed, I said, oh, cool. I don't have to go to work today. And <laughs> in Pittsburgh, like snow is normal. Like you still have to go to work. Cause I texted Ron, I said, is work canceled today? He's like, nah, nah, man, this is Pittsburgh. You, you gotta find a way to get here. So I used to have, I used to take the bus uh, from, uh, from where I was staying at to, to get to work and all that stuff. So. Yeah, it was crazy, man. But um, yeah, the biggest adjustment I would say was the weather. The uh, the best adjustment was um, how close everything is. So in LA, you have to have a car to get around to drive. Yep. And in Pittsburgh, you can kind of navigate the city by bus, you know, sometimes by Uber, depending on where you have to go. And you could get places relatively quick, depending on the time of day. That's so true. for me, learn what I did the two years I was working for UCLA, I would just drive around to learn the city. So I would just drive, get lost, end up, you know, somewhere like, okay, this looks familiar. I know this. And, you know, Pittsburgh has so many neighborhoods and so many different enclaves that I would, you know, pull up my navigation. Okay. So this is East Liberty. Okay. So this is, you know, Brookline. So I started, right. uh, that's how I got to know the city those first two years. And then I just looked up people and started doing informational interviews. So I saw some great articles on you. I was like, this is a brother I need to connect with saw some stuff on Penny and just started connecting with people because I was working from home and just doing informational interviews to find out who are the people in Pittsburgh that have the same mentality as me or people that I want to build networks with. Now you did, you, you did a wonderful job when it comes to that, man. You talk about, I mean, you talk about earlier, man, building relationships is very authentic and, and natural. So Center for Urban Education, doctor, go ahead, speak to it. Yeah. So, um, you know, Rich, Rich approached me and Rich said, would you be interested in getting your doctorate and working for me? So I said, absolutely. So an organization that, you know, you and I both keep near and dear to our heart, the Heinz Foundation, they uh, funded a program called the Heinz Fellows Program. So for three years, I oversaw the Heinz Fellows Program, which were folks that were working in uh, urban schools in Pittsburgh Public, mentoring similar to a lot of the stuff you do with Orange Arrow. And while I was overseeing that program, I did my doctoral work on actually looking at embedding this, um, like removing a deficit mindset and having folks look at not just achievement gaps, but opportunity gaps, a term that you know Rich has uh, really, really embraced, looking at opportunity gaps in urban schools. 
big picture, what was my, my dissertation on? It was taking a diverse group of folks and having them work with predominantly black and brown students and not developing a deficit mindset or taking a deficit mindset into those schools. So a lot of the talk right now around like, you know, anti-racism, social justice and things like that, you know, through the benefit of working for the center, and, you know, you were part of this as well. We were on the forefront of doing a lot of that work and looking at a lot of that. So it's now it's become popularized and even politicized. Whereas the work that we were doing back then was to benefit students in those schools so that people going in the schools wouldn't think of it as these poor kids and I need to give them this or that. But it was a mutual relationship where we can learn as much from young people as young people learn from us, if not more. So for those who may not fully understand that term you use, deficit mindset, break that down a little bit, a little bit for us, unpack that. Absolutely. So, so what tends to happen sometimes is, especially those of us that are in more fortunate positions, we tend to look down upon people that may not have the same opportunities or the same fortune we have and say, I need to come in and help these people. These poor people are in these situations. When you approach a deficit mindset, you approach something with what's lacking, what's not there. And what I always try to do is say, all the things that people need are in the school as long as resources are put in the school. So inner city schools don't have any less amount of smart children. They don't have any less amount of anything except maybe resources. And if we provide resources to those, school, to those schools and utilize them in the correct way, you'll see that those students will succeed and achieve just like anybody else. So when you talk about a deficit mindset, Sean, a lot of the schools we worked with were in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. And we always made sure that we did a walking tour of the Hill District before you went in the school. We met with community members. We met with folks in the neighborhood. So you could learn how rich the history of the Hill District is and not go into it with a deficit mindset of what this neighborhood doesn't have or what this neighborhood is about. You would get it straight from the people of the richness and the history of the Hill District is unlike almost any other city you know, across America. So right. learning about that, you approach working with young people in a different way. You approach working with people in the Hill District in a different way, knowing that they come from this rich culture and rich history. Yeah, I um, no, no, that 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 is so important, so needed, so valuable work. And uh, like you said, it's interesting now, like the times ran, like some of the things we talked about before, some of the things you were working on is like becomes, you know, it's a popular thing to work on or even a politicized. But thanks for breaking that down. And uh, and so we start off the pod. Where are you right now? You're in LA. Yeah. So what took you back to LA? I'm going, going back, back to Cali. So from Pittsburgh to LA, why? So it was a crazy thing, man. It's, it's, it's a mix of God's blessing. It's a mix of life happens. And it's a mix of taking an opportunity and saying, this might be the only chance I have to do it. So I got to do it. So um, I'll, I'll go back to 2019. 2019, trying to decide what to do with my career, finished my doctorate. So, you know, I've got this doctoral degree and I'm like, I want to put it into use in different spaces. I wish I could go back to athletics and do some of the work I'm doing in urban ed and athletics, but it just doesn't exist. So a position opens up as an associate athletic director at UCLA. It was a position I had always wanted. So I applied for that position. And at the same time, I come out, I interview for the position in LA. I fly back to Pittsburgh my mom calls and my dad passed away. So without the job interview, I wouldn't have got to see my dad pass away. You know, I wouldn't have got to see my dad. And, you know, it was unexpected. So I fly back to LA. I'm helping my mom with the arrangements, getting everything squared away, making sure she's 
taking care of making sure emotionally she's okay. So once I stayed out here for about a week and a half, made sure she was okay. Um, in the Uber on the way to the airport back to Pittsburgh, and I get a call from UCLA offering me the job. Wow. And I just figured my mom needs me out here to support her. This opportunity, you know, wouldn't wouldn't just come again. I've got to take advantage of it. So ended up, you know, jumping on the opportunity to come back out. And, you know, we talked about it. I, uh, I left, you know, my two kids uh, back in Pittsburgh, unfortunately, but I've developed, you know, a way now, like my kids are out here with me for the summer where being a dad is the most important thing in my life. That takes precedence over any work that I do, anything else that I do in life. I want to leave a great impression on other people's kids, but my kids, most importantly, I want to be a great dad. So the ability to do the job I've always wanted to do and then balance that out with being a father, man, that's, that's huge to me. So I've been in LA now, didn't see the pandemic coming. So I started December, 2019. I get, you know, I get my, my, my dream job, my foothold in, I'm, reconnecting, doing all this stuff, boom, the pandemic hits. So I started thinking, what's the best way I could be most effective in a space where we're not meeting face-to-face? Uh, -face? So you're talking about developing relationships, Sean. I said, you know what? I think our coaches with athletics shut down need to, need to develop skills in order to be good communicators, building relationships with their student athletes. So I started working on some professional development things where our coaches via Zoom would work with uh, teacher trainers in the School of Ed at UCLA. So I had a group of folks that were training teachers on communication skills and helping them and coaching teachers to teach in schools. I had a conversation with them and I said, what if we applied those same concepts to coaches? Right. Coaches, as you know, are educators and teachers and they're working with young people. Now that we don't have athletics going on because of this pandemic, what if we could provide them skills to help them become better communicators, to help them learn how their position as a male coach coaching female student athletes, as a, a white person coaching student athletes of color, what that looks like and what that means. So we did some professional development, Sean, and that's where I feel like it was a blessing for me to be at the Center for Urban Ed during that time because... Yeah. I had the language, the skills, and the dispositions to have conversations with a diverse group of folks around when the pandemic hit, helping with uh, communication skills and things like that. But when Ahmed Arbery, Brianna Taylor, and George Floyd hit, and people in our department didn't know how to talk about race, I really felt like it was my calling to be here at that time. And we had conversations around race. We had conversations around racism, systemic racism, institutional racism. And from working with folks like you, Dr. Milner, you know, Lori Delaney O'Connor. Wow, know, shout out to Lori, man. You, you're dropping all the legends. Yeah, all, all the legends yeah. at the center, just working with them and them helping me and training me and imparting knowledge upon me. I felt very comfortable in those space. And, and mind you, Sean, you know, those, those, uh, that EDD, that doctor before your name really speaks to it. So when people would question, like, why is he qualified to speak in the space about that? I, I got my doctorate. I did research in this area. I'm well-versed in a lot of this. And I've worked in athletics previously with a lot of you. You know my work speaks for itself. So I really developed relationships with coaches during that time, Sean, where coaches got to know while I was gone in Pittsburgh, here's the work that I did. Here's how I think it applies to athletics. And even though we're in these little Hollywood square boxes and we're not face-to-face, -face, let's have a conversation and let me talk to your teams about what's going on. Let me talk to why the one black student on our women's water polo team may feel uncomfortable 
with the situation that's going on because she doesn't have a teammate to confide in about what's going on in the world today. Let's talk about why our football team, you know, being asked to come back and practice during this pandemic, there's racial and socioeconomic issues where some of them coming from households where they may be afraid to take uh, um, to, to come to campus and maybe bring COVID back to their household. So that's my, that might be why they opt out. Having those conversations and helping our coaches to not just develop the language, but understand like my background and where I come from shapes who I am, just like you and just like other coaches, we have to be mindful of other people and their backgrounds and where they come from and how that shapes the decisions that they made. So again, I think it was just God's plan, Sean, for me to be at that place at that time, at the place that I call home, UCLA, which is where I'm at now. That's powerful. That's powerful. Hats off to you all and the team. Much needed, valuable work. And I mean, taking advantage of, of that time. And you know, what come to mind phrases like you were built for this. I mean, so taking your, uh, your journey, your past, and be able to bring that together to help others. That's what it's all about. And so speaking of helping others, you know, that's what we're all about with Orange Arrow. You've been supporting the work of OA for a while. And as you know, the mission is to coach student athletes to aim for success off the field, off the track, out of the pool, wherever the playing arena may be. Kenny, Dr. Donaldson, please speak to the importance of an athlete being successful outside of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what happens a lot of times, Sean, and you could speak on this better than I can, but I think a lot of times when our young people are interested or want to become athletes, that's what their identity becomes because that's what they get encouraged about. That's what they get acknowledged for. And that's what they get recognized for. I'm sure as a young football star, people always talked about, oh, Sean can do this. Sean can do that on the football field. But are they talking to Sean about the academic things that he can do? Are they talking to Sean about his career aspirations? Are they talking to Sean about other things? Because we know, you know, the, the ball eventually stops bouncing, rolling, or whatever sport you may play, it eventually ends. And if you haven't had those conversations or thought about your identity outside of that, it really becomes difficult when you can no longer play athletics, whether because you're injured and you can't play anymore, which I know you're familiar with or your career just ends and you're like, what am I going to do now? That career transition piece is so tough. So that's why I think it's important. And I've always made it a point to have conversations, whether you're the top basketball player at UCLA and you're leaving after a year, or you're on a, a, a rowing team or a team that doesn't have a professional team to start thinking about like, what's your next career move or what are the things you're interested in? So to bring a, a specific example of what you're talking about, Sean, me and Kevin Love used to have these conversations about what he wants to do in life and what are some of the skills that he, he would like to develop. So we started planning classes based on that. He said, hey, I'm real comfortable talking and speaking, but you know, I wanna get better. So why don't you take a speech class? Because one day you might wanna be a TV announcer or a broadcaster when your career is over. So Kevin, you, uh, you know, you, you're in a position to build this brand of Kevin Love why don't you take a class on entrepreneurship or take a class on brand building so you can learn about using yourself as a brand and learning how to build your own brand. So the conversations I would have, Sean, with young people and young student athletes is that athletic piece is great. And that, you know, there's people that are here that are going to work with you on that. I want to tap into your passions, tap into things that you love so that when either fortunately or unfortunately your athletic career is done, you've started thinking about what your next move is. You've started thinking about what that pivot or that shift's going to be. 
So I think it's absolutely important to have these conversations, Sean, because nobody plays sports forever. Nobody can have an athletics career forever. And even if you want to stay connected to athletics, it's important to know where your passion lies so that you can adjust and pivot as your life goes on. Wonderful. Kenny, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your continued support. Thank you for all that you do. More importantly, thank you for who you are, man. Appreciate I appreciate you, man. you, man. Look forward to connecting with you, maybe in L.A. Absolutely. Can you give a shout out to the invitation we have coming up next week, Sean, or July? Yeah, the OA Performance Invitational. UCLA is on board. Thank July you, 6th, we're kicking off. It's going to be a blast. Special guest. More importantly, it's going to be developing these student athletes and some of the stuff that you were saying, finding their passion outside of their sport. And uh, again, thank you for your, for your time. We're going to rock. Thanks for having Appreciate me. It's a pleasure. Take care. Right. Go Bruins. Yeah, absolutely. Four is up. That's what we do here.